Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Well, today we're going to be talking about a subject that I think is even hotter in terms of more dangerous and more um, (laughs) inscrutable, I guess, than coronavirus. And that is all the craziness that is going on in our streets notably um, where police are being beaten and killed and this mantra is going out um, about defund the police. I mean, the first time I heard that, I don't know when that was, a few weeks ago, whenever it first started, I I thought, well, here we go. Here's um, the latest example and the worst example that I had heard at that time of Corona crazy, what, I call, what I'm calling all these rash decisions that people are making that are crazy. And um, I then soon learned that this was not just one random rash decision. This is a crazy thing that is going on all over our country. And so, um, so today's show is called Police added to endangered species list, list, can they be saved? I mean, I I don't think I would have ever believed um, when I was growing up that I would be ever, or even, even, even more recently than that, that I would ever be having a show like this. I mean, what kind of stupid question is that? Well, to answer this question, um, we have the perfect person. Her name is Betsy Brantner Smith. She's uh, a sergeant, Sergeant Betsy Brantner-Smith. She's a 29-year veteran of a metropolitan police department in the Chicago suburbs. She's now retired, and she's now the spokesperson for the National Police Association. So, Betsy, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dr. Carroll, for having me on. I'm, I'm uh, really excited to get to talk to you live. Yes. Well, um, these are questions that, you know, lots of people are asking, maybe not out loud because they're afraid of what kind of reaction they're going to get, but they're certainly wondering these things. I mean, for the most part, you know, people grow up um, really respecting, I mean, until recent days, really respecting, and even now, the majority of the people do still respect and need the police, of course. But, you know, as little kids, growing up, um, respecting the police, oftentimes having a policeman or policewoman come to class and talk about their job and, you know, how they can be helpful and um, all of that. And um, it's not, and I'm sure, well, you can tell us, but I think that that was more in line with what you were thinking when you joined the police department, which you did at 17 years old. So let's start with that. What made a nice girl like you (laughs) decide to join the police department, especially you know, we're talking 29 years ago or more. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know. more. Um, absolutely. <laughs> so, I mean, that really you know, wasn't, that, even then, that, that was even more of some, of a, you know, of an, a unique thing for a woman to do. Oh, absolutely. Time. I, I became interested in police work in the, uh, in the early 70s 
when I was in junior high. I grew up on a farm in Illinois, and the only policewoman I ever saw was on TV. You know, I saw Angie Dickinson uh, and uh, Teresa Graves as Get Christy Love, and I thought, wow, that's a cool job. I think I could do that. And, uh, huh. you know, so I told my parents, yeah, I think I want to be a cop. And they're kind of like, yeah, be a lawyer, kid. It'll be fine. And, uh, <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I had super family support, great parents who said women could do anything. So at age 17, uh, when I was a senior in high school, I became a police dispatcher for my local sheriff's department, went to college, was a dispatcher in college. And then two weeks out of college, I was uh, uh, hired by a suburban Chicago police department and spent uh, 29 years there. Just I had a variety of assignments, and it was a it was a wonderful career. But I became a cop in late 1980, when especially in the Midwest, women were not you know it was not the most uh, common thing to see. Obviously, that's changed considerably, and it was a wonderful career. Well, yes. Let me uh, do a, tell my audience a little bit more about you. Um, she became an officer, and she's held positions. I mean, we could go all day. I just put her highlights in the uh, bio section of the description of the show. But um, she's been in just about every uh, aspect of police work, and uh, from, you know, including uh, patrol investigations, narcotics, juvenile hostage negotiation, crime prevention, and field training, also uh, with canines and with the elderly. Um, she has also been on television and in other media. She's hosted various programs. She was a content expert for the Law Enforcement Television Network. She's currently an on-air commentator and advisor for the Police One Academy. And she was a featured character in the Biography Channel's Female Forces reality show. She's won tons of awards. Um, she's a speaker. She's a writer. She has created uh, a course that's the only one of its kind for women in law enforcement called The Winning Mind for Women. So let's get into it. Uh, so, when you, yeah, so when you were 17 and you joined, and um, even though, yes, it was outside of Chicago, which, you know, is not the easiest place in the world to be, right. to be a policewoman, um, still, t- tell us about how things have changed over these years. Well, I, I got to be honest with you. My first sergeant um, told me that he didn't believe in broads in police work. He eventually <laughs> became uh, a, a very close friend once he uh, realized that, you know, I was serious about the job um, at the police academy in Cook County, Illinois. On Monday, there were four women in the class. By Friday, I was it. And, uh, and oh. it was very difficult. But, you know what, we didn't. We, and there were so many women um, that, you know, I got to know and worked with. And, and you know, we all just did our jobs. And we said, okay, they, they you know, women were new to police departments in the Midwest. And so we said, you know what, we're going to work hard. We're going to be in great shape. And uh, we're going to do the job. And, uh, and that's what I did. And, and, you know, I had so many great experiences um, you know, being undercover for four years was amazing. I, I got to work mm. with kids. I got to work with senior citizens. You know, I did child sex crimes uh, for quite a while. I got to, I, I promoted to sergeant, ran um, school programming, and I got to run the canine unit and uh, the bike patrol and, you know, did a lot of crowd control stuff like you're seeing now. 
And, um, and, and the thing is, when, when you decide to become a police officer, you know, it's not, you just don't go and interview for it and go, oh, you know, okay, you're the police. You know, it's a, it's a difficult process, which it should be. Um, but it's, a, it's an adventure. It's a calling. And in those 29 years that I was a, an active police officer, I never had the same day twice. And that's probably mm. kind of like your job, doctor, you know, and that's one of the reasons uh, I was drawn to that kind of profession. It's never the same day twice. And I would recommend even today, and we can talk more about this, to any young person out there who's thinking, gee, uh, being a cop does sound like a b- pretty big adventure. Um, I'd still recommend it to anybody. It's just real different now. <laughs> yes, we will talk more about that later, but a real big adventure is an understatement. So you were basically like Olivia Benson before Olivia Benson from um, Law & Order SVU. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, except that's my one of my favorite safety. shows. Yeah, I know, but her officer safety skills are terrible. I'd love to spend a week with her training her, but uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but she is fantastic. And you know what? She's a fantastic in real life, fantastic person. Just a an amazing advocate for sexual assault victims. I I really uh, I really admire her greatly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. So. Um, so let's just talk a little bit about uh, what the National Police Association does. Well, the National Police Association, it's a, it's a not-for-profit. It's a 501c3, and it's basically an educational organization that was founded to help our citizens um, understand how they can help us. You know, there's lots of there's police unions and police associations, but there was really no police association for the citizens, the civilians, if you will, who want to support their police. And, and this is becoming more and more important every single day here in the United States. And so what the NPA does is, is um, as the organization grows, we do some legal advocacy for different um, police officers or communities. Um, we help rally the public um, for different situations like um, uh, you know, when uh, cop killers are being paroled, we uh, we do get involved in conducting inquiries uh, of people, uh, especially elected officials who are anti-police. And uh, and we help get uh, we help support police officers, not just nationally, but locally. And we really help citizens understand how they can support us. And I would, I would uh, ask everybody to go to uh, nationalpolice.org, uh, find us on Facebook, find us on Twitter, and uh, get involved. Because a lot of citizens, I talk to a lot of citizens every day who say, I, I, other than waving to my local patrol officer when he or she drives by, what can I do to get involved? Mm-hmm. And that's what the National Police Association does. And, you know, I'm sure you probably see it where you live. Now we're starting to see a lot of back the blue rallies. There's a lot of back the blue Facebook pages, and and uh, it, it's really heartening uh, for law enforcement to see that. And the National Police Association helps put kind of an official spin on so much of that. So we help citizens and understand us, and we help police officers when they've been wronged. Well, and when did the, was the the National Police Association founded? Uh, it was founded about 2013, and and it was just a it was just an amazing idea 
that blossomed. It was very grassroots. And, and, uh, you know, it's an, it's an apolitical organization. And that's, that's what's so important now as policing becomes more and more politicized. You know, we are supposed yes. to be American law enforcement. We are supposed to be apolitical. I have stood on protest lines um, for, for everything from uh, pro-abortion people to uh, skinhead white supremacists to uh, anti-abortion people protecting those, you know, some of the most, I have stood on a, on a protest line and frankly uh, protected the most abhorrent people <laughs> I've ever met in my life. But it's their right to peacefully protest. And it's the, it's the role of the police to help protect them when they do it legally. The yeah, problem we're peacefully. having now is it's not done legally, it's not done peacefully, and uh, it's not done within the scope of our Constitution by any means whatsoever. So now, um, yes, absolutely. So now in 2013, when the NPA was formed... Um, was there, was that the beginnings of what we're seeing now? I mean, was that, was there a concern then, um, about the disrespect towards the police and, you know, and sort of just the very beginnings, um, of what we're seeing now? There, there absolutely was. And that's what was so forward thinking about, uh, the founders of the National Police Association is they saw this up-and-coming, what Heather McDonald, author Heather McDonald calls the war on cops. And, and mm. you know, they saw this happening about the time that they formed the association. And then, of course, immediately what happens in 2014, we have uh, the Ferguson shooting. We have the Michael Brown shooting. And, and that just really exploded this horrific war on cops that we're seeing now. And, and of course... That was also when Black Lives Matter, um, the organization, really came into um, uh, the, the limelight, if you will. That's when we saw the violent tactics of Antifa really start to take over in urban areas, including uh, the St. Louis area. But, you know, when, remember when Ferguson was happening and the, the Michael Brown riots, if you want to call them that, there were also violent riots in Oakland and Minneapolis and New York, and that was right around the time of uh, Occupy Wall Street and Tifa really ratcheting up again. And uh, and the National Police Association saw that and saw where the trend was headed, and uh, and that's when the whole association really started to take off because they saw that law enforcement needed civilian support. So, okay, so this is perfect. So let's look at that 2013. Where, how, why did the war on cops start? I mean, yeah, I don't think, it's not just because there were a few bad apples who, you know, um, who did things that got national attention, did bad things that got national attention. I mean, you know, you mentioned Antifa and Black Lives Matter and all these different groups, this, this melange of groups that are against the police, where, what is the beginnings of this? Where did some, who got the idea and where did they get the idea that this was a good idea? 
Well, we can go back to, actually, we can go back to the 60s. When, when I started uh, even paying attention to the news when I was just a kid on the farm, we were, uh, the United States, we were losing about 250 police officers a year to line of duty deaths. That's a lot of cops. We now average about 150 losses a year. About 80 to 90 are killed in some sort of violent, felonious manner. Um, so there was there was a, a what we would call a war on cops in the 60s and on into the early 70s. And, and then as we got into the 80s and we got more prosperous, that, you know, crime started to go down again. Until about 2008, 2009, and we had, if you recall, four police officers murdered in a coffee shop in Lakewood, Colorado. Um, and then you started to see more multiple shootings of police, multiple attacks on police. And, and then, you know, then we got so overly politicized again, going to, you know, you, you can go back to, um, the, uh, beer summit, uh, with President Obama. Um, when he uh, very shortly after he got into office started to attack uh, law enforcement and what we did, saying the Cambridge police acted stupidly, that started to embolden some of these uh, groups. It started to embolden people to attack police officers. So that really by the time the Michael Brown shooting happened in, in Ferguson, where Officer Darren Wilson uh, was forced to use deadly force against uh a, uh, and Michael Brown was a large guy. He was a gangbanger and he had just committed a strong arm robbery, decided to attack Officer Wilson when Officer Wilson just simply asked him to get out of the roadway, tried to, tried to disarm Officer Wilson. Officer Wilson had to shoot him and, and, uh, kill him. That was just a, there was that perfect storm brewing. So by the time that Ferguson occurred, and Ferguson, Missouri, is a very small town in St. Louis County, Missouri, and and they had never dealt with anything like this before with the, the media and social media and out-of-town protesters coming, and, uh, and then Black Lives Matter and Antifa and Occupy Wall Street, really all part of the same group, inserted themselves, uh-huh. inserted... They inserted themselves, and and then, you know, we were off to the races. And then you had uh, four Dallas area police officers murdered. You had uh, officer ambushes increased by 150%. Um, and, and it just, things just skyrocketed to the point where American policing became even more dangerous for American cops than it even was before. I want to continue, get a, go a little deeper into this when we come back. We need to take a break. Um, my guest is Betsy Brantner-Smith, Sergeant, the spokesperson for the National Police Association. We're trying to get to the bottom of this, um, and we're talking today about police having been added to the endangered species list. Can they be saved? So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Ask the experts.
experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll free at 1 866 472 5788. Now back to the show. Here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back. To Dr. Carol's Couch, where we're talking today about the police added to endangered species list, can they be saved? And for all of us, I hope the answer is yes, but it isn't going to be easy. My guest, however, is explaining all of this to us, uh, and it will help to uh, give us, uh, you know, help to let us know where we can maybe go from here to help. The police, which is really helping ourselves in the end, because who are you going to call when you're being robbed, raped, murdered, or when there's the next terror attack? I mean, people are not thinking about that. Um, and we're going to get back into what they are thinking about with my guest, Sergeant Betsy Brantner-Smith. Um, she is the spokesperson for the National Police Association. So let's, let's uh, get, go back to where we left off. And if you could sort of go a little deeper into how it is that, um, that you know, you were saying about how this organization started in 2013 when there were the beginnings of what we have now, uh, some people who had enough foresight to see where we were going, you know, <laughs> down this path, and just explain a little more about how we got here. Well, thank you, Dr. Carroll, so much. Um, it- in that uh, immediate post-Ferguson uh, era for law enforcement, when we saw, you know, we, we saw the um, NYPD police officer shot by a, a guy who had been admittedly been um, influenced by the Black Lives Matter um, movement. We saw uh, Reverend Al Sharpton leading a group of marchers down uh, the streets of New York 
uh, shouting, what do we want? Dead cops. When do we want them now? <laughs> and, and as that all started to really spiral out of control, unfortunately, the political left in the United States seized on that war on cops, if you will, and, uh, and didn't tamp down the attacks but started to help ratchet them up. And in September of 2017, the Obama administration put out a report called Policing in the 21st Century. And that was supposed to be a a blueprint for how we were supposed to uh, police. And what happened then was, uh, well, actually, and, and this started, you know, I should say, actually, it started in uh, 2015. Um, but what what happened is the uh, the DOJ via the Obama administration got a group of people and they went around the country and they did all these listening uh, sessions and they had people come and complain about the police. These people were not vetted in any way. So they had people who had spent 10 years in prison then sit before these committees and say, oh, the police were this, the police were that. I sat mm. down, I read this report three times, and it, it wasn't just a race issue, but it claimed in this report that police were abusing the LD, LGBTQ uh, community, that, that uh, you know, we were um, not uh, doing things properly when we're talking about domestic violence, all kinds of different things, attacks that I had never heard before. You know, American law enforcement continues to become more professional, more modernized, better educated. But all of a sudden, when we look at this 21st century policing report from the Obama administration, it it talked about just American law enforcement was just terrible. So we started to look into that. It it actually, it, it, the, uh, the task force started in uh, December of 2014. And it just was an attack on the very core of what police officers do. Now, I was a police officer in Illinois. Before Barack Obama was our president, he was my senator. He did two things in Illinois. Uh, One was partial birth abortion laws, and the second was racial profiling uh, laws in Illinois. And those laws were used not to help us police better, but to attack police departments and call us all racist. It was incredibly divisive. Hmm. He took that style of um, legislating to the White House and furthered that attack on American law enforcement. And we have huh. been fighting that ever since. That's very I mean, interesting. You, okay. And, and in fact, in fact, a, a lot of your listeners may remember when those four Dallas area police officers were were murdered at a Black Lives Matter protest that the, the police officers were participating in. It was a peaceful uh, protest, but there was uh, a man who armed himself, was very angry about Black Lives Matter because of all the media rhetoric he heard, all the uh, uh, political rhetoric that he heard, murdered these four police officers. And this was a horrible tragedy throughout the country. The president was one of the speakers at the funeral. And I encourage every one of your listeners to go on YouTube, listen to that speech, and hear President Obama not eulogize these officers, but attack American law enforcement in general. Mm. And he used a police Mm. officer's funeral to do it. Wow. Okay. And now this has evolved how... I mean, so take us to the present. 
Sure. So here we have the the George Floyd situation, and you have to go back pre-George Floyd and realize where we were headed. This this current unrest really isn't about George Floyd, and in fact, I would uh, I would challenge. Uh, anyone to go to any of the uh, quote-unquote peaceful protests in Portland and Seattle and Chicago and New York and ask any of these people, who's George Floyd? I guarantee yes. about 75% yes. of them won't know his name anymore. But the George yes. Floyd situation, on that unfortunate incident occurred, and we were in a perfect storm already because we're in an election year, and I have, I'm 61 years old. I have never seen a more contentious um, political situation in my country than I see right now. And it's all about the, uh, it's all about getting Donald Trump out of the White House at any cost. Trump derangement syndrome, and you know this better than I do, I think it's real. I think it's a real mental illness. And we're seeing the hashtag resist people want to do anything they can to get rid of Trump. And remember, Donald Trump is the most pro-law enforcement president we've ever had in this country. And so they have to, if they're going to hate Donald Trump, you got to hate everything he loves. And he loves American law enforcement. Well, you know, but okay. I, I see that. I agree with you. But... What I don't get, what's the crazy part, you know, what I was talking about at the beginning, is mm-hmm. that in this process, um, these cities are are just being destroyed. And I am originally from New York, and seeing New York be destroyed the way it has been over these past months, and of course, uh, Chaz or Chop in Seattle, and now Portland, um, I mean... <laughs> What are these mayors, and, and of course the police have been trying to do their job, but so what are these mayors thinking when they are just basically encouraging, you know, sending these people out from Black Lives Matter and Antifa and all these different groups, these radical groups, what are they thinking? Why are they willing to destroy their city to, to get rid of the police or vice versa? These far left mayors and their governors and their city council people, their leftist uh, philosophies are they're so far to the left. You know, they are socialists, they are Marxist, and they will burn down their cities to get rid of Donald Trump to get rid of conservatism, to get rid of law and order, because, and I think that most of them believe in, an, in, a, in a utopia, and, and of course, what do we all know about utopias? They don't exist, they can exist, but they believe in these socialist utopias. Uh, let's look at Mayor Jenny from Seattle's the perfect example. She called, originally called Chop Chaz, a summer of love, a block party, until she had three African-Americans murdered. She had multiple women raped, and she finally had to allow the Seattle police to go in there and, and uh, um, close that down. And now she has managed to run off the city's first African-American female police chief. 
That's just absolutely unheard of. What a lot of people don't know in Minneapolis is Minneapolis did the exact same thing pre-George Floyd. Minneapolis ran off their, their female police chief and then went through multiple more police chiefs. Minneapolis, people want to say, oh, there was a police department out of control, this and that. The Minneapolis Police Department, I've trained a lot of their cops. I travel all around the country and train police officers with my husband. The Minneapolis, Minnesota Police Department was one of the most progressive police departments in the nation. They were not some rogue cowboy police department. They were so progressive in their training and in their policies. The, the, one of the big training events that they held for all of their police officers just prior to George, uh, the George Floyd killing was they taught all of their police officers how to not misgender people that they came in contact with. Those were their priorities. Mm. Nobody mm. had more community policing programs than Minneapolis. Nobody had more community policing programs than the Chicago Police Department, then the NYPD, then LAPD. But now these have all been pushed to the side. You look at the uh, Austin, Texas Police Department, they just had their budget cut, you know, in this defund the police movement that we're hearing about around the country. And when you look at all the millions of dollars cut from the Austin Police Department budget, it's almost entirely community policing programs. And yet, what are we all being told? The police need to have more to do with the community. The police need to do community policing. Dr. Carroll, we've been doing community policing since the mid-70s in this country. We're really good at it, but we have to have a, a, a public who cooperates with law enforcement and follows the law in this country. It truly is about law and order. Well, that's the thing. I mean, when if there are fewer police, defund the police, fewer police, especially now at a time when there are more, they're, they're letting prisoners out, you know, inmates, criminals, out of jails and prisons, and at the same time that they're defunding the police. Um, so how, I mean, surely there isn't going to be law. How could there possibly be law and order when there are fewer police and more criminals out there. Well, of course. And, and, you, and where is that going to happen? It's going to happen in the larger urban areas. It's going to be happening in Chicago and, and New York and Miami and Pittsburgh and Philadelphia. And what's going to happen is people and police officers are going to leave those urban areas and they're going to go to the western states. They're going to go to what we call the, the flyover states. A couple of months ago, my husband and I, you know, with all the unrest and plus coronavirus, we said, you know what? We've got some time off now. We jumped in our RV and we headed to Wyoming. We spent a little time there. We spent a little time with a friend who's a police chief in South Dakota you know what we saw, Dr. Carroll? None of what you see on TV. There were no riots. There were no burning. There were a few peaceful protests here and there. But people don't understand that outside of these urban areas, there's really very little of this nonsense going on that you see in Seattle and Portland and Austin, Texas. And so people are going to get away from those areas, and their police officers are going to go with them. Seattle uh, City Council just cut 
uh, 100 brand new police rookies. They had a, a uh, police academy class that was the most diverse class that they've ever had. And again, Seattle's a very diverse, progressive police department. They canceled that class. So here's all these trained rookie cops who now don't have jobs. You know where all those rookies are going? Away from Seattle. And that's what Mm. you're going to see is the police are going to flee and these people in urban areas are going to flee them too. Look at New York where you're from. People are fleeing. The the only place that's losing more people than New York is where I came from in Illinois, the Chicago area. And people are Mm. fleeing and they're, they're coming to places like Wyoming and the Dakotas and Arizona and, and Montana where there isn't all this stress and strife and riots and hashtag resist. Hmm. Wow. Well, that's a good place, yes, to take a break now. When we come back, we'll talk more about this. I want to talk, for example, about um, the impact this is having on the morale of the police and and that kind of thing. Um, My guest, again, um, is Sergeant Betsy Brantner-Smith. We're talking today about the uh, extinction of the police. Are they going extinct? So stay tuned for more. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Tune into the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. We're with you wherever Alexa and Google are. At home, in the car, on your smart TV, and your connected devices. Hey, Alexa. Hey, Google. Play my favorite Voice America podcast on TuneIn. It's just that easy. But make sure you actually mention the name of the podcast show to make it work. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. Don't write yourself 
Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch, where we're talking today about uh, whether the police are going extinct or not. Um, one thing uh, that I want to talk about before we talk about the morale of the police and what's happening and so on, um, one of the things that just is so chilling and so unbelievable, I mean, I get, uh, I wake up in the morning and I look at the news and I, um, you know, I <laughs> start to look for things to tweet about and there's just so much uh, outrageous stuff out there. Um, and one of the things that bothers me the most is the brutality, the savagery, uh, not only against cops, but, well, I mean, that's the worst part of it, really, because it's like, what? <laughs> How, you know, these things that don't make any sense, I mean, that, you, that were no-nos for a long time in society. There are no rules anymore in civility, in society, in, you know, people are just, it's a free-for-all. And, um, yeah, absolutely. And like, you know, just the most recent one, um, in Portland, uh, where they, they, um, there was the man who, um, was trying to protect, protect a trans woman who Mm -hmm. was being robbed and so on. And then the crowd went after this man. Now he had done nothing to the crowd, you know, to the, um, well, I don't want to call them protest, but the rioters. Um, I mean, other than to try to get them to not rob this woman, but, um, and then they made his car crash and then they went after him and then they barely missed killing him. I mean, it's, I mean, so far, I guess he isn't dead, but he's, he's barely escaping with his life and his wife and these women went after his wife, these, these, um, violent women. I mean, the, the, the degree of savagery is beyond what we have ever seen. Tell, tell us about that. Well, people are feeling uh, very, very entitled to do damage. Let, let's look at a couple of weeks ago where my youngest daughter lives in Chicago. You, we saw all this, this incredible um, looting that happened on the Magnificent Mile after a justified police shooting. And they just... Um, uh, you know, it, they trashed the Nordstrom's and the Macy's and Gucci and all this. And the next day, a Black Lives Matter, the leader of the Black Lives Matter movement in Chicago, went on the news and said, this is reparations. And these stores have insurance, so this is no big deal. We're entitled to these Nike shoes and these Gucci purses. There's an incredible sense of entitlement and there is a, there's something, and I, I, I encourage everyone to research something called procedural justice. And, and that's a concept that's been around for a long time. And what procedural justice says, that if you're a person who is downtrodden in some way, you weren't raised, you know, in the best of circumstances, you weren't educated properly, you weren't, uh, you know, breastfed long enough when you were a child, you are entitled to commit more crimes and more acts of violence than, say, somebody who was raised uh, in privilege. And so what you're seeing is the manifestation of that theory of procedural justice. So that, for example, in Portland, and and Portland, you know, we're on our 82nd day of constant riots in Portland, but it started a long time before the George Floyd situation. I, I was in, we trained in the Portland area a lot. My husband and I were there. Um, about eight months ago, eight, ten months ago, 
and uh, just before coronavirus. And we walked around the city of Portland and it was already trashed and it's just constant panhandling, aggressive panhandling and screaming and yelling. And there were riots even then. And uh, my, one of my husband's best friends just spent a week. He's uh, involved in the uh, federal law enforcement service. He just spent a week in the courthouse there um, to, because everybody in federal law enforcement has to spend a little time there if they're in leadership. And he said it's like Iraq. And it's mm. because it's been allowed to occur. And the more you allow bad behavior, you know, you know this better than anybody based on your education. It's the same with children. We allow a child to behave badly when they're two. When they're 14, they're going to behave even worse. That's what we've done with these yes. protesters. The, yes. the behavior Actually, I've, has I've been, been allowed. Ta- I've been talking about that. Yes, that, that is a beautiful way to describe that and certainly psychologically accurate. And also, I've been talking about it uh, in terms of Sir Isaac Newton's first law of motion, uh, a body in motion tends to stay in motion. Bodies will continue in their current state, whether at rest or in motion, unless acted on by a greater outside force. So the bodies in motion have been all these uh, rioters, and unless we have, um, you know, a force that comes in, notably the police, um, supported by the National Guard, and perhaps even we need the military supporting them. To, to stop this, it is going to keep going in this very same way. What well, is your the, suggestion? Here's the thing. Here's what we used to do uh, when we talked about crowd control. Because, and I used to be very involved in this. And in the community where I worked, we would have, they were called Reclaim the Streets. They're basically anarchists. They're, or, uh, you know, they're Antifa. They would come every year to our city to protest capitalism and things like that, although they'd all pull up, you know, in their SUVs with uh, their iPhones. (laughs) But um, they wanted to protest capitalism and and things like that. What you have to do, you know, if they get a permit, you have to let them protest. But the minute they get violent or they break the law or they try and block the streets, um, then what you need to do is arrest them take them to jail, and then prosecute them. And this is the problem we're having all around the country, is even if these protesters, these rioters, let's call them, get arrested, most often they are not prosecuted. So they get out of jail, they, the charges are dropped, and this is what the media won't tell you. They come right back to the riot line, the next night, how do you stop that protest in motion, as you as you so aptly put it, is you arrest them and then prosecute them. But we see it over and over again. In Portland, again, is the perfect example. The state, after the um, federal law enforcement pulled out of there, the state police came in and said, uh, we will protect the federal buildings. The state police are pulling out because... They were told, yeah, you can arrest people, but we're not going to prosecute them. What is the point? It can't just be the police arresting people. You have to have prosecutors willing to take these cases to trial because all of these rioters, remember, most of them don't have a lot. You know, most of them are, are, you know, living in mom's basement or whatever. Although, remember, most of the rioters that we're seeing arrested in Portland, and I hope people realize this, the vast majority of uh, rioters arrested in Portland are teachers. They're teachers who aren't working right now. And huh. if when, when people get prosecuted, 
They have to spend money for lawyers, for travel back to the jurisdiction to go to court. It gets very expensive and they tend to go away because they can't afford that. So this is why why you're seeing these... So why aren't the prosecutors prosecuting? Because of politics. Because if we can keep these protests going... Uh, through, I guarantee you, you know when these protests are going to stop? November 4th of this year. Well, I don't know. Donald you know, Trump is well, reelected. Well, if he's reelected, what? Then, then, oh, then the um, cities will burn. <laughs> you mean so the protests will stop because the cities will burn? No, no. Let me rephrase that. What you're going to see is if, if, Well, there's going to be riots either way, whether the Democrats win or the Republicans win. Um, But eventually what you're going to see is if you see a shift in politics, you are going to see a change in uh, prosecutors. Understand, people need to understand, that's why politics are so important. Most urban area prosecutors are uh, Democrats. They're from the the left. And so when you Mm -hmm. look at New York and Chicago and Portland and Seattle and L.A., they're prosecutors, but first prosecutors, but first and foremost, they're politicians. Most of them are elected officials. They need to keep their base um, in order to get reelected. So Chicago, where I'm from, we have a we have a, a state's attorney. They call him in Illinois, um, Kim Fox. She throws out a third of the felonies that the police bring to her. One third of them. Hmm. You know, she keeps. You know, the yeah. mayor of Chicago keeps talking about more gun laws. What we need is prosecutorial reform, and we need sentencing sentencing reform. People need to get mm-hmm. sentenced for the crimes that they commit. Yes, yes, and not like in New York and maybe in Chicago. Um, uh, also, not no bail, you know, people being arrested and then leaving the same day and not having to pay bail also adds to all of this. Yeah, New York um, City is a perfect example of the failure of bail reform. You know, I mean, this is really, you know, even after um, the uh, election, which may be November, <laughs> the beginning of November, maybe right. maybe longer, um, but even after that, regardless of who wins, I mean, I think, you know, looking at these bodies in motion or like what you were saying about the kids, you know, two and then 14, they are just too high uh, with adrenaline on all of this savagery, regardless of who wins. Yeah, and you're right, Dr. Carroll, but I think what we're going to see after the election, because I believe Donald Trump is going to win again. When Donald Trump wins again, the the hashtag resistance is they will absolutely lose their collective minds. And again, you're going to see cities burn. What's going to be different is I believe that you will see even these far left mayors and governors and city councils. I think you're going to see them take action. If they cannot stop Donald Trump, then what they're going to have to do is try to save their cities. And so I think mm. they will encourage uh, more arrests. I think they will encourage prosecutions. And I think that this movement will eventually burn itself out. But it's going to get more painful, I believe, 
before before we reach that point. And that's why it's so important for people to support their local law enforcement and also put pressure on their local politicians. You know, as the saying goes, all politics are local. And that's never been true uh, more than it is now. And because law and order, quote unquote, has been so politicized, it's going to be the people of the United States in these areas who are going to have to say, this is enough. Let me give you a perfect example. It just happened to me an hour ago. My mother-in-law called and said, uh, I have to take your stepsister to uh, have a procedure done in Seattle at a hospital in downtown Seattle. And my husband and I got on the phone and said, absolutely not. You've got to find someplace mm. else to do. And it's a life-saving procedure. But we said, we will not let you go to Seattle to go to that yeah. downtown hospital. And we're going to find another place to have that done. How sad is that, that my stepsister can't get medical, yeah. the medical help that she needs to save her life because of these thug protesters and rioters that are out there disrupting American life. Yes, absolutely. Well, I am sad that we have come to the end of our hour. I mean, one of the things, we didn't get a chance to talk about morale, but I mean, I think people have a general idea that the morale is not good in the police department. Um, and, of course, we're going to need more police, and it's really, it was hard enough recruiting. But um, tell people where, if they would like to support the National Police Association, where, how can they do that? I encourage everybody go to go to uh, nationalpolice.org. You can also find us on Twitter and on Facebook. And I just want to reassure everyone that American law enforcement officers are out there every day. There's almost 900,000 of us, and we are ready, willing, and able to lay our, our lives on the line to protect you, the American citizen. We have not stopped doing that, and we will never stop doing that. Well, that is really uh, admirable and courageous and all of those uh, similar adjectives. Well, I'd like to thank my guest, Sergeant Betsy Brantner-Smith. You have been incredible. You've really explained things so beautifully and it's really <laughs> made it very clear how tragic all of this is. But at least we all have a better uh, explanation and understanding of what is going on. Again, it's national. It's um, national police. Dot org. Org. NationalPolice.org. Yeah. And uh, read more about the different things that they are working on. And, um, you know, it's a good thing that this started back when it did. Well, thank you so much again. And thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch. And I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat.